didn't see it coming. The podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. I love talking with people who are smarter than me and who are doing fantastic things in fields that I'm interested in. One of those people is Freya Williams. Now, I've known Freya for years. Uh, We were in the Green Mafia together. We went to the same conference as we hung out. Uh, Interesting, though, Freya is also in advertising. In fact, she uh, co-founded Ogilvy Earth, uh, which to me was a wonderful sign that mainstream advertising was coming around and trying to figure out how to incorporate sustainability. Now, that was years ago, and uh, a number of big things have happened to Freya. One, she published a, a groundbreaking study called Mainstreaming Green, which is why the mainstream consumer is not buying into green. And I thought that was just such a huge eye-opener. I loved that study, used it for years. Now, Freya is with a new company, Futera, and uh, continuing on, Uh, working in advertising and helping companies mainstream sustainability and make sustainability sexy. And she has just released a new book called Green Giants. And this book I thought was so reassuring because it tells the story of how green companies or companies that are led by mission are breaking into the billion dollar revenue mark. And that's what this book is all about. And I was lucky enough to land Freya for a 20 minute talk uh, on her way between advertising gigs and book tours. And Freya, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Lovely to be chatting with you. Good morning. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to grab you for a few minutes. Um, why the book? Why the book? So, you know, I've been at this game for, for a while now, as you have. And I felt like I kept on having the same conversation, which is, you know, yeah, but you know, I'd be chatting to a sustainability client and they'd say, but my business colleagues just don't think there's a business case. And in fact, I was writing an essay at the beginning of 2013 and it was on this topic, this perennial topic of can purpose and profit coexist? And of course, the subtext of that question is that they can't. And, you know, I felt like after all these years, like banging away at this, um, trying to crack this nut on proving the business case, Um, I couldn't believe it was 2013 and I was still having the same argument with the world. You know, yes, there is a business case. And I just knew I needed a stronger, a stronger case than the one that I had, which is, well, you know, I think it's sort of really good savings, efficiencies. You know, we needed this to shift from bottom line to top line. We needed this to be less about efficiencies and savings and more about innovation and growth and revenue. And so I was sitting there trying to write this essay and I suddenly stumbled on the information that Chipotle, um, the, the burrito chain, had... over $2 billion in revenue in 2012, I'm sorry, going back a bit now. Over $2 billion, that's billion with a B. Now, I know in the intervening years, Chipotle has become this kind of huge, huge behemoth, and it's on everybody's radar, but even going back um, a couple of years, it really really wasn't. So to realize they had over a billion dollars in revenue was kind of a thing. And I thought to myself, huh, that billion with a B, there's something kind of a bit mystical about the billion in the lexicon of the business world. You know, it carries this strange weight. And if you've reached that threshold, it brings you a whole new level of legitimacy and credibility with the business community. So I thought to myself, well, if I could find some other companies that are sustainable at the core and have a billion dollars or more in annual revenue, then I might have a thing. So I did some digging 
And I was able to figure out that at the time there were nine companies that had a billion dollars or more in annual revenue from products or services with sustainability or social good at their core. And I thought to myself, you know, this this really could be a useful a useful data point that starts to shift this dialogue. So if I'm a business leader and I don't believe there's a business case and I come to them and say, really? Because between these nine companies, they have $100 billion in annual revenue just from these more sustainable products and services. Wouldn't that start to maybe pique your, pique your interest and start to persuade you that there is a business case? So this book to me is really, it's almost a continuation of the mainstreaming work that I began. But instead of mainstreaming with the consumer, it's trying to mainstream this with a business audience who you know, I think is interested and would love to be doing this if they felt like it could align with their business interests as well. So in some ways, I'm almost describing the book as a piece of propaganda. It's my effort to engage that business audience um, through the, the language that's relevant to them and provide them with some fresh evidence and a reason to reappraise sustainability, not just as where they spend or maybe save some money, but as how they earn it. It's, it's funny too. Um, one of the things you talk about is this isn't CSR. And I thought you summed up CSR, corporate social responsibility, in such a neat way. You said it's what companies do that's good with the money they earn doing something else. And you said the shift now is that companies instead are saying, how do we make the money in the first place? Which, I mean, having worked on, on things like oil companies, I, I took a look at this and went, well, that's just it. They all build schools and help people and have cultural projects. And that sort of is a smokescreen to keep people away from how they're earning money in the first place. And this is nice because it's simpler. These guys are making money by doing what they believe in, which is a wonderful way to go to work. Now, you mentioned in the book you had a contrast between a, a set of companies that in their mission statement basically just have double talk and baffle gab about shareholder value and balance sheets and these wonderfully simple, motivating missions of these companies. Can you fill us in on one or two of those missions, the, the nice, simple ones? Yeah, when I do my sort of PowerPoint presentation on this to a group of people, I start off with a slide of the mission statements from a random set of Fortune 500 companies. And they're things like literally, our mission is to return value to shareholders and create EBITDA or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, maybe. Yeah, you, just, you just wake up and you go, damn, I want to go to work. And That's the, so well, good. And the, I'm so motivated. The other point with these is they are completely um, it, undifferentiated. I mean, you cannot guess which company one or the other is for. So, they're generic. They're really generic. And they say nothing really about what this company is, why people get up to go to work every day. And I also equate it a little bit like with me saying, I'm going to get really rich. Great. But how are you going to do it? What's your strategy? And so what these purpose statements are, um, is they're not just sort of a fluffy feel good mantra that I think a lot of people think of when they talk about a corporate purpose. They are actually a very tight definition of the corporate strategy. So perhaps my favorite example is Unilever's, which is their corporate purpose is to make sustainable living commonplace. Yeah. Great. So that's how you're going to not only have a really strong positive impact in the world, but it's how you're going to make your money. It's what people get up to go to work to do every day. So when I get up in the morning and I'm trying to make a decision in the office, will this decision make sustainable living commonplace or won't it? It won't, right? It's not a priority. And, and you know, it's one of those wonderful things, too. I'm a young person working at Unilever, a brand manager, and I'm doing something I'm on the fence about, and the boss comes in, and it's such a simple thing. You know, he goes, well, yep. on this side, is it making sustainability commonplace, or is on this side? It's such a yep. simple, clear-cut thing. A six-year-old could figure out the right answer. 
That's right. And I think with, with, with an example like that one at Unilever, that's a very large mission statement. It gives you a lot of runway as a business. You know, there are so many ways you could make money making sustainable living commonplace. So it also takes a very long-term view. It's very expansive. There's a lot of room to maneuver. Um, but, it, you know, do not be under any illusion that this is just some kind of fluffy feel-good thing. This is absolutely what the company exists to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why a purpose statement is a very valuable business strategy, actually. It isn't just this feel-good thing. Now, you, uh, you bring up a very interesting point because um, a purpose statement to me is like a brand. Everybody goes, a brand, that's nice, it's designed, it's a nice little color thing, it's a logo. I go, no, it's like the bow at the front of the ship. Um, it's, it, it leads the way the ship is going, and it, if it's a good one, it pulls everything else in its wake. So mm-hmm. a Unilever making sustainability commonplace, if you lead with that, people go, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, that's me. I like that. that. I like you. I believe in what you do. And you get sucked up in this wake and you contribute your efforts because it gives you clarity and, and inspiration. Yeah. The other one that I love is Tesla. Yeah, I was going to bring up Tesla because yeah. the, the difference between Tesla and Fisker, maybe you can go into that, the, the, the small mission statement versus the very big mission statement. So... I don't know if everyone who's listening will be familiar with Fisker. They they were um, another um, luxury electric vehicle manufacturer who was um, trying to launch a vehicle almost head to head with with Tesla's original Roadster. And those those two things were kind of playing out side by side. So it was such a fascinating um, comparison because uh, so Fisker's Fisker's purpose statement was about um, leading the development of a luxury electric car, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that's a pretty interesting but the, the big uh, deal idea. the big the big word there was car that yeah they said we're going right. to develop electric cars and that's the mission statement right then you look at Tesla and their mission statement is to transition from a mine and burn hydrocarbon economy to a solar electric economy and wow that is exactly what I want to see happen in the world uh, it's lovely if there's electric cars but that's kind of a one and done like you make this car and then what yeah then what happens and it's also a very sort of prescribed mission statement it's very much in the context of a certain industry it's not particularly disruptive actually whereas what you see with the tesla mission is it is completely disruptive and in each of the companies i looked at this disruptive innovation was a crucial factor in driving that billion dollar business success and you can see how that purpose statement yields the potential for tons and tons of disruption but it's also the kind of thing that's going to get as you said people super jazzed i mean it's going to create enemies and it's going to create people who will die, you know, go down fighting, fighting for your cause. And really, that's what you want. You want a brand that people believe in to the extent that they're willing to kind of Kill do anything yeah. to make it happen. Yeah. Now, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cool point because um, Elon Musk, speaking of people who are going to bleed for it, you know, you describe, I love the description in the book about how Elon Musk bled for this, how he started out with PayPal and he was a gajillionaire and he sunk 160 million of his own money yep. and government funds and loans from his mother-in-law or whoever, the neighbor next door. And he was down to his last $3 million. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's fascinating because you see Elon Musk today. And obviously, he's now this huge success story. And you see him talking, and he seems very composed and very kind of accomplished. But it's so fascinating to go back and look through that history, because there are actually a couple of great movies you can watch, Who Killed the, Who Killed the Electric Car, and then, I can't remember what the second one's called, but about this history of the electric vehicle. And absolutely, Musk's success was anything but guaranteed. I mean, when he joined Tesla, it was like two guys and a, and a design. 
They didn't even have, I don't think they were even incorporated. They certainly didn't have patents filed. You know, he absolutely, absolutely took a complete flyer on this idea because he just believed in it. And you you look back over the history and there were so many times where the company nearly didn't make it. You know, mm-hmm. the um, there's there's um, all these things he had to do personally to put his reputation, his, his personal wealth, um, really well-being on the line to get this idea through and you know there was this point at the end of 2008 where apparently he nearly had a nervous breakdown because he'd lost so much money he'd made all these promises to people and cars still weren't being produced because you know let's not be under any illusion about how hard it is to bring this car to market it is phenomenally difficult but he stuck with it he stayed the course he showed an unbelievable courage and commitment and now tesla is the story it is today now that is an amazing segue too because uh, I remember one quote you you put in there where Elon Musk said, "It feels like I'm eating glass every day." And yep. and to every entrepreneur who is trying to do something like you know, I'm launching a new company right now, and you're just looking at it going, "Oh my god!" You look at that and you go, "Elon freaking Musk!" You know, it's very yeah. very motivating for somebody who's trying to follow a mission and get something launched. Now, the point though, the segue is. Uh, the naysayers, the deniers, the haters, uh, you know, now uh, Tesla, according to your book, has a higher valuation or higher revenue uh, than General Motors? I think it's almost, it almost has the same market cap, even though they produce like, I don't know, 100 of the vehicles or something. It's just this crazy success story. So now I look at Elon Musk, this guy who basically was like Rocky, almost knocked out and came, uh, came back and now he's this rock star. And I must be shaking in my boots if I'm going, oh, this guy, he's not a flake. This guy's been through hell and back. And now he says he's not just going to create a better car. He's going he's gonna to create a better uh, uh, energy system for the world. Right. Now, I'm an energy company. I would laugh this guy off. And then I look at him. I go, oh, it's rocky. You know, yeah. I, I'm sure these guys are starting to take him seriously. Well, you saw that, especially with actually the car companies, because, um, you know, there's quotes in the book about how the German luxury auto manufacturers who have dominated that category for years admitted they were caught with their pants down because they really, they had, they had electric concept cars, but they were just that they were concept cars. They really weren't trying to commercialize an electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. It was almost like window dressing, to be honest with you. Um, whereas Musk was absolutely serious. He was going to make this car and he was going to sell it and he was going to make money at it. And he was not only going to do that, but he was going to transition the economy from, the legacy economy to this new economy. He has no investment in the hydro, the hydrocarbon economy. They are deeply, profoundly, a, you know, a century into being invested in that economy. So he's he's at liberty to do what he, whatever he needs to. And you see this fascinating pivot from, um, you know, General Motors uh, delisting its own electric vehicle to then, of course, forming a crack SWAT team to study what Musk had done to make sure that they can very quickly pivot and bring their own. Uh, competitor to market but he's he's out pretty far in front it's gonna be hard to catch him i mean i've i read something this morning that prius is slightly struggling now with sales just because the gas prices are so cheap but toyota of course invented the prius a decade before musk came out with with tesla that that um vehicle model still owns 50 toyota still owns 50 percent of the u.s hybrid car market 14 years after launch because they just got so far out in front of everybody else. Mm-hmm. So I think you see that with, with Musk. He's just so far out in front of everybody else that the others are kind of like, oh, shit, we, we did not take this guy seriously. And I, I sort of retort, say to people who say that about Elon Musk, he's the only person to have ever successfully landed um, and returned to Earth a spaceship to the International Space Station, right? 
this is a guy who the only other people have ever done that is the US government and the Russian government. Yeah. Do, not, do not underestimate this dude. He is deadly serious and he gets shit done. So I think it is fascinating to look at how also one individual and then, of course, a whole cadre of, of talent that he um, arrayed around him have really transformed an entire industry segment and really how we look at the potential for this whole solar electric economy. And you see solar now. Mm-hmm. Solar is now price competitive with fossil fuels and taking off. And, of course, we just got this amazing climate deal in Paris that does materially shift um, the expectations of, of the global economy. So my hope is that um, with this book, with these major, major indicators, and, of course, with this now, the success of these companies, that we are finally at that pivot point that people like you and me have been waiting for, where we can finally put to bed the conversation about is there a business case or isn't there a business case. That brings up the next point. Um, you and I have both been around in in the days of uh, companies that were living their mission and struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling. You know, before we got on the call, I was talking about Stonyfield Farms, how it was basically two guys living in the woods of Vermont for 20 years trying to get this thing going. And they had their success, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't four years of crap and then boom, you've got Tesla. Right. It was 20 years. Um, why now? Why is the world coming finally around? What's the story? I mean, I think there's a combination of things. I think, first of all, those guys were early. And when you're ahead of trends, sometimes you do have to wait for everyone else to catch up. So there's that. And although Tesla has succeeded very fast, most of the green giants have taken upwards of 10 years to reach the billion dollar mark. So there's definitely a timing thing going on. There's sort of, it just takes time. But actually, um, we saw Tesla have that speedy success. Uh, Target, within the space of two years, has got to a billion dollars with their made-to-matter line. Um, so I do think the pace is accelerating. You're seeing what I call the next billions, brands like um, Warby, Parker. Warby Parker and Sweetgreen, the salad bar. You know, these are like the next gen of these brands, and they're coming up very, very fast. And I think people's expectations are changing. If you don't have to compromise, which often in the past you did, where as a consumer, you often had to accept kind of some kind of trade-off between your values and value, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't anymore. These brands have proven that um, sustainability is not just sort of a bolt-on. It's not a, um, a trade-down in quality. Often it's a trade-up. And I say that these businesses are using sustainability to invent the products and services of the 21st century. They're not just greener, they're better. And so as a consumer, what's not to love? I also think there's just some more practical nuts and bolts stuff where some of these companies have figured out how do you operationalize sustainability within a very large company in a way that is a boon to the business, not a detractor from it? You know, how do you restructure your organization to let that happen? There's just simple things like cost structure. And, you know, with Chipotle, I look at how they just built up their business to account for the more expensive or ingredients that their ethical food stuff um, is. You know, it's just a non-negotiable in their price structure. So they organize everything else around it to deliver. So there's just, you know, there's just that good housekeeping stuff that these companies have also got right. They just are very good at running their businesses so it's a combination it's also it's interesting because i I also believe um i talked to um a fellow of mine who works in energy efficiency and i talked to him about the energy companies and i said so how's it going you know the how are the energy generators treating you and he says we're winning the sustainability battle one retirement party at a time and i thought that (laughs) nailed it that the world you know we've got we we joked about the kids who are one two generations closer to the apocalypse than we are and they take it a lot more seriously because they are going to be feeling the rising temperature. They are going to be feeling the food shortages a lot more than we are. 
And mm-hmm. I mean, in Canada now, we've got this young prime minister who is very much into uh, renewables. And it's, love it's, him. Love him. yeah, it's given the whole country juice, right? I mean, JT, Justin, uh, Justin Trudeau, he's bringing sexy back. Um, and it's it's a wonderful feeling. It, it is rejuvenating, and 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 it's look making all the rest of us look at our economy, which is resource heavy. I mean, Canada relies on stuff you can pull out of the water, chop down, or pull out of the ground, and it makes you fat, stupid, and lazy. And then you look at Singapore, and they had they didn't even have fresh water when they got thrown out of Malaysia, and they banked on brains. Mm. Their resource was brains, and so it's very exciting to have an economy. Uh, and companies leading the way where you go, these guys are banking on brains, not stuff that was given to us by God's virtue and we're just using and burning the, 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 mine, and, the mine and burn hydrocarbon economy. Yeah. But technology and ideas and, and building a car where everybody in the garage is an electrical engineer, not a mechanical engineer. I love that. Yeah. So yeah. that's my own diatribe. Uh, I want to I close off by talking about you personally, though. You work in advertising, and I look at things like eco-imagination, I look at things like the Prius, I look at things like Tesla, uh, not so much Unilever, but it seems to me more and more that innovation is taking a seat at the grown-ups table and uh, advertising is being pushed to the kids' table because this whole idea of selling uh, an animated cartoon as your brand character uh, selling a, a corporate image after things like, you know, Volkswagen, after Turing Chemicals, after FIFA, after you name it. People don't trust big business anymore. They trust people and they trust stuff. Like, like Steve Jobs says, you know, do you want to make, make your living selling sugar water or doing insanely great stuff? Where's advertising going in this whole picture? Well, actually, interestingly, Futera is, uh, we say we're not an ad agency, we're a change agency. And we, do, we don't just do um, communications, we do strategy as well. So we have a theory of change. We figured out what it is that these leading companies that have been successful, like the Green Giants, do. And the four things they have, they have a vision, they have a roadmap to get there, they have a symbol of, of their vision of the future, and then they have the storytelling. And so we help companies, wherever they're at on that journey, to get that full picture together so they can jump forward and lead. So in fact, I quite consciously made this shift um, from this away from straight advertising to this more sort of hybrid um, notion of change where it's really about what's our big idea? What is our innovation? Because one of the key lessons of this book is that marketing is one of the, five, one of the six things that you need. Great mainstream marketing that allows you to engage your mainstream audience in this is, is absolutely essential because if you can't engage people in buying it or participating in whatever your idea is, then that won't allow the business case to emerge. But it's by far from the only thing that you need. You need your leadership. You need your disruptive innovation. um, You need your purpose. You need to figure out why you exist. You need to be behaving in a way that is really transparent. You need to be taking responsibility for all of your impacts. You know, there is so much that goes into it, although no more than goes into any other business success, to be honest. It's not like it's any harder, I don't think, than any other business success of this scale. So absolutely, I mean, I think we are focused on that complete picture because you can't drive this kind of change from the sustainability department alone or the marketing department alone. The whole enterprise has to be on board. And that's one of the things that I sort of settled on is people often say to me, what's so different about these companies from other companies? And it's that it isn't a sustainability strategy. It isn't a marketing strategy. It's a business strategy to which sustainability and social good is central, but it's not siloed over there in its own little group. It's really about reorienting 
the entire entity is about business transformation. And that's what I want to work on. That's what I want to be doing is helping these companies really think about how do we create the future? And it's funny because you were asking about, um, you know, the millennials and this whole uh, idea of this new, I've definitely spoken to folks under 35 who are like, why did you need to write this book? Isn't this already completely accepted? And I'm like, no, no. you know, joining Futera, I spent, I did a road, road trip of, you know, the businesses of America meeting with sustainability folks. And it's a patchwork quilt out there. Some folks are like, yeah, we're leading. And in fact, Hannah Jones at Nike, who's featured in the book said, oh, it's only a billion dollar opportunity. You know, she's like, it's multiple billions. It's, it's this huge, huge opportunity. Whereas others are like, yeah, I can't get my business people to uh, take a meeting. Yeah. So we, you know, it, this, it is, it's, it's, it's once you step outside the bubble, this is not widely accepted or believed in or understood or embraced. And I, I want it to be. So that's really what I'm trying to do is to make sure that we can, you know, we can do this. And it feels so good when you get it right. Look at the climate deal. How yeah. amazing did it feel to make the right decision? Yeah. It feels great to do the right thing. You know, I, I, to your point, though, I think one of the roles that you can play, too, is um, a company needs somebody on the outside to bounce things off of. Uh, because you can get so inside your own jar that you think, why isn't everybody buying this? I remember that was the big failing of the early sustainability companies. We're right. Why isn't everybody coming on board? But they don't. And and 99% of people don't get it or don't think about it. They got soccer practice. They got music lessons. They got to figure out what to make for dinner. So last question, the future. Do you think that, the, um, that this group of companies is going to lead to an exponential growth in yeah. Green Giants? Do you think that it's going to go, uh, everybody's going to be start standing on their shoulders and going, wow, they broke the way for us and it's just going to break open the floodgates? Or do you think it's going to be a steady, slow um, growth of well, Green Giants? So I published the book in August and since then, Target's passed the billion dollar mark. In December, um, Organic Valley, the organic food company, became the first billion-dollar organic food company. Um, I've learned that Haynes Celestial is a $4 billion organic food company. Um, J&J apparently has an $8 billion portfolio of sustainability, um, and so on and so forth. So already I'm seeing new examples being added to the list. And so that gives me confidence that, you know, this is a train in motion and this is going to continue continue moving and I definitely look at this the, the next billions this new raft of brands that have been built like this from the get-go coming up behind you know I think I feel as though we're not just looking at a few isolated examples what um, Joel Macau described to me as green unicorns I think we're really looking at, 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 a, at a, a groundswell at least I certainly hope that I'm right and I really do believe that you know with all the changes in the business environment with what's happened in Paris Increasingly, this isn't going to be an option. It's just going to be the correct response to new business realities, to the shifting uh, population trends, to population growth, to you know the, the need to cut carbon. It's just going to become the new operating environment. But I do think that creates then huge, huge opportunity for new leaders. And Hunter Lovins, who's one of my mentors, always says, you know, do you want to be a company of the past or a company of the future? And it's clear what the companies of the future will be like. They will be like the green giants. Yeah. So. I'm hopeful that that's where it's headed and uh, that between us we can start to really help those businesses that want to make this happen um, make a leap and become the next leaders. Thank you. That's a wonderful place to stop with. I th It feels like I'm just riding off into the sunset now. That was a wonderful conclusion to the story. <laughs> 
Excellent. <laughs> awesome, Faria. Thank you so much for joining me. And now I, I want to go get Green Giants. Obviously, it's on Amazon.com. Green Giants yes. by Freya Williams, F-R-E-Y-A-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. And if I want to be a fanboy, I can just look you up at Futera, F-U-T-E-R-R-A, right? Indeed. And my Twitter handle is Freya1. Right. So you really want stalkers then, don't you? Um, <laughs> as long as they're favorable. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. If you want to get a hold of me, drop me an email at mark, M-A-R-C, at markstoiber.com, M-A-R-C-S-T-O-I. B-E-R dot com. Have a good one.